Let's turn together, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 34 through 40. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. If you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You can be seated. It was Matthew Henry who said, All obedience begins in the affections, and nothing in religion is done right that is not done there first. All obedience begins, he says, in the affections. Love really is the highest virtue. Now, when we talk about love as a Christian, we have to be really careful because if we stand up and talk about love as Christians, we will get lots of accolades, right? You get, you'll hear this is kind of the mantra of the day is, is love and people equate love, and you hear oftentimes other words alongside of that, love and acceptance and, uh, and, and things like that. But what we need to be careful of is when we look at the Scriptures, because we can see that the Bible is replete with the idea that as Christians we are to love, that love is the highest virtue that we are to do as believers in God, as Christians, as those who, who believe in, in God. We're to show love. But what we have to understand is that the biblical definition of love is entirely different from the worldly definition of love. We have to be clear that we're not talking about the shallow and superficial gobbledygook kind of love that the world offers. In the world, love is a feeling. Love is something we feel. And, and, and we've talked about this time and time again. When we talk about love, there's many different kinds of love that is mentioned in the Scriptures. There's agape love, there's phileo love, and we'll talk about those more in just a moment. The, 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 the Hebrew had many, and the Greek had many different, excuse me, the Greek had many different words for love. As Americans, as, as English speakers, we have one word for love, and it's just that word, love. And so you can say, I love to eat donuts, and I love to spend time with my family. Hopefully you don't mean those both in the same way. If you do, we need to have some talk after the time the service is over. But that's all we have, right? We have the word love. Now, we might say that I love you very much or, or I greatly love you. We might try to put some kind of adjective on there to try to make it sound more intense, but there's only one word that we have for love, and so people confuse this. So when you talk about love from a Christian perspective, we have to understand it's not this shallow type of love that, that's based in feelings. Because, brothers and sisters, let's be honest. Sometimes if, if love was totally based on feelings, we would not love each other the way we're supposed to. When love is based on just how we feel that day, that moment, that season, that's not the true kind of love because it fluctuates all the time. It changes. But that's the world's kind of love. All you have to do is, is watch television, and you'll see that one celebrity who's celebrated in one moment, who everybody loves, who everybody adores, says one wrong thing, and suddenly nobody loves that person anymore. It's very fickle. It's a very finite. And isn't it, isn't it amazing that this is the kind of love that the world wants to celebrate? Is this, is this haphazard kind of love that really has no substance to it? Whereas true love, the love that the Bible talks about, is the supreme kind of love, the biblical love, the agape kind of love, the love that really matters, the love that comes from the deepest, innermost part of our being. In fact, Romans chapter 13, verse 10 tells us, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We see that God's commands are fulfilled through that simple word, love. Now, before you think that I'm off my rocker, because I, I can oversee, I almost think we say, oh, he, preacher Chris has gone off the deep end, right? He's up here talking about that the fulfillment of all these things is love. But brothers and sisters, it really is. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to teach us in this text, that everything that God has commanded us to do as Christians can be fulfilled if we understand what love is. If we understand how love is to be appropriated and demonstrated in the life of a Christian, this is what Jesus wants us to understand. So just a little bit of background. The first thing I want you to notice, and we're going to jump right in here because I want to give the background underneath this first point. What I want you to notice here is first the plot 
created. The plot created, and that's there in verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Now, each group, the Herodians, which were some of the, 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 the subset of followers of the Pharisees, then the Sadducees, and now the, the more elite group of the Pharisees have now come to Jesus with what they think is going to be a question or a hypothetical situation that's going to trip Jesus up. They think, we, we've found the question above all questions that will catch this false teacher, this fraud in his lies and allow us to expose him to the people. But what I love is that every single time, and even more profoundly in this moment, Jesus takes a stick and sticks it through the spokes of their bicycle wheel. They're riding down there, and they think they've got it all figured out. And just in such a very concise way, Jesus just puts it in there, and off the bike they go, down to the ground. It's not that they just slow down. It's not that they just hesitate. They come to a complete crashing halt. And remember, Pastor Ben pointed out last week, uh, these groups hate each other. The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all these groups, they despise each other. In fact, despise might not even be strong enough word. Hate, loathe would be a greater assessment. But what's interesting is that their hatred of Jesus was so much more that they were willing to overlook how much they hated one another in order to join in this brazen attempt to discredit the ministry of Jesus. I mean, this is, this is an incredible moment here to realize this. It's like, this helps us to understand what it looks like to be a hater of Christ. And it helps us to understand when we look at the world, we should not be shocked when lost people do the things that lost people do. We should not be shocked when we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees teaming up because, brothers and sisters, to hate God is to hate God. It doesn't matter who you are. And so they hate God so much. Listen, I hate you as a Sadducee. Rather, I hate you as a Pharisee, but man, we hate this guy even more because he was a threat to everything that they stood for. And we see this happening in our world. We see this happening against Christianity in our time. There are groups that are teaming up together that they hate Christianity so much. And why is it? Why is Christianity such a threat to this world? Because it stands in polar opposition to everything that this world teaches, everything that the world celebrates, everything that the secular world wants to do. Christianity stands up and says, no, those things are wrong in the eyes of God. You should not do those things. Really, the reason that the world hates Christianity is because Christianity takes a definitive stand on issues. We live in a world where people do not like absolutes. We live in a world where people do not like to say that there are absolute truths. You'll hear oftentimes this saying, well, this is what my truth is. And this is what their truth is. Brother and sister, there's no such thing as my truth. There's no such thing as their truth. The only thing there is is the truth. Change, the truth does not change subject to the person who hears it, subject to the person who believes it, or subject to the person who speaks it. Truth is always truth. And this is one of the reasons why Christianity stands in such vast opposition to the world. It's because Christianity makes a stand as this is what God has said, and this is truth that cannot be abolished. This is truth that cannot be turned away. Now, last week... Pastor Ben looked at this text where the Sadducees attempt to confound Jesus with this question about marriage in heaven, and Jesus quickly and directly silences them. And, and it was a very obvious and public degradation of them, like that he embarrassed them publicly in such a way that there was nothing left for them to do. And so what it is is that when the Pharisees saw this, you know, in a sense, they were probably happy, right, because their enemies had been silenced publicly. But then in a sense, they're frustrated because they had hoped that the, the Sadducees' plan might work and that Jesus might be quietened. So they begin to come up with this plan. They create a plan to mount together what they thought would be the ultimate and final and greatest attempt to get rid of Jesus. I think it's interesting what it says. It says that they gathered themselves together. You can almost imagine it. You're standing there, and Jesus is here, and you see over there in the corner all the Pharisees huddled up together. It's like, okay, guys, what are we going to do? It's like, we've got to come up with a really, really good question this time. He got the Herodians. He, he got the Sadducees. We've got one more chance here. What, what can we ask Jesus? What can we do? What can we get him with? And it reminded me of Psalm chapter 2. 
where it says the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear the fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The scripture goes on to say that the Lord sits in heaven and laughs at their vain attempts. The Sadducees, they're all gathered together over there in the corner, and they think they've got it going on, right? These are the guys who are the religious elite. They think, we're going to be able to do this. I have no doubt in my mind that in this conversation, they were convinced that this was going to be the moment that they finally trapped Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't have even bothered. Right? They've seen him cut down every single group. They've seen him speak so powerfully, so prophetically, so boldly, whereas the Scripture goes over and over to say that the people were just stand in amazement at Jesus because he preached as one whom they had never heard before. So the whole reason that they decided to do this one last attempt was because they were convinced that they finally had the question. But take a moment to realize the sad ridiculousness of this situation. This is a group of men, the religious experts of the day, conspiring to discredit the man who was the answer to everything that they, their fathers, their father's fathers, their father's father's father before them had hoped for. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had longed and dreamed and hoped for the arrival of the promised one. The one who God had said, I will send a Messiah to you, my people. I will ultimately deliver you from the curse of this world. I will ultimately deliver you from the bondage of sin. They had waited and hoped and prayed. And here in the flesh, in front of them, was the Messiah. And they refused to see it. They would not see it. They could not see it. It was obvious, but they were oblivious. So we see the plot created. I want you to notice secondly with me this morning, the plot commenced. Look at verse 35 and 36. It says, one of them, a lawyer, asking him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. Now, according to many scholars, this was actually a a fairly debated question by the religious leaders in Jesus' day. This was not just a, a random thing that they had pulled out. They, they thought about, okay, what, what have we been debating ourselves? You know, as Pharisees, what have we been discussing? What's the kind of the, the hot-button topic of the day? And this was the hot-button topic, was which one is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, we understand that the Pharisees numbered the law at 613. They had 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commandments. And you remember, we've talked over and over, specifically early on in the book of Matthew, how the the Pharisees had added so much to the original law of God. They had taken what God intended as a good thing. Galatians says the law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law was created by God to demonstrate and to teach us and to show us our inability, right? Right? It's a schoolmaster. It shows us that as human beings, we cannot please a just and a holy God. And that was its purpose, to show us that we need God to forgive us. We need someone to stand in our place. We need someone to be obedient to God on our behalf, and that person is Jesus. We cannot keep the law, but one did. We cannot be fulfilling the law in our own lives, but one has perfectly fulfilled the law, and that person is Jesus. And the Scripture says that if we put our faith and trust in Christ, that the righteousness that Christ demonstrated by perfectly fulfilling the law, that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So the law was a good thing. Sure, there was a lot of regulations. There were a lot of things. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. God was demonstrating through the law the separateness of His people that they were a people that were set apart from the rest of the world. No other society did circumcision. No other society had these dietary laws and regulations and rules for the temple. God said, I'm going to set you apart as a people. So when every other nation looks at you, they're going to be like, there's something strange about those Hebrews over there. There's something unusual about that group of people. They were a people that were set apart. But now we're set apart because of what Christ has done in us. Now, we're set apart as a people not because of circumcision and not because of dietary laws, but we're set apart as a people because we obey and do what God has called us to do, and that separates us from the rest of the world. So this was a common question. With all of these laws, these 613, again, they said the Pharisees had added so much on top of this to burden the people down. 
They, they come up with extra laws as to where you could go on the Sabbath day and what you could do, but they basically made it work for themselves. If you remember back, you know, the amount of stuff that you could pick up and you weren't allowed to leave your house on the Sabbath day to go anywhere else, but if you tied a string from your house to your neighbor's house, then all of a sudden your neighbor's house became your house because it was connected by a string and you could go back and forth across the street as long as that string was tied between your two houses. All kinds of foolishness like that. So the question that this lawyer asked, now a lawyer is not in the same kind of concept as we have today. The lawyer uh, for the Pharisees would be one who copied and studied the Mosaic law. They called them a lawyer, or most of the time you might hear it translated as a scribe. It was one who translated or um, copied different copies of, of the Mosaic law and studied it because of the vast amount of time that they spent in intense copying of the text. They were classified as the experts of the Mosaic law. So the question that this scribe or this lawyer comes up and asks is not a question that's inherently evil or bad. The question is not a bad question to ask. In fact, it's, it's probably really a good question. If we look at what God has given us in the original law and the Mosaic law, and we ask ourselves this question, okay, which one is the greatest? Is there one above all others that, that if anything happens, that we should be sure to make sure that we are fulfilling this law? Which one is it? So he comes to Jesus with this question. Now, it's interesting to note that at this point that all those scholars are readily agreed that the intention of the Pharisees and their plan is evil because it even says that there. It says that they came to test him, to ask him this question. And we know that their number one is desire is to, to, to trap Jesus and to catch him in this moment. Where scholars disagree, and, and, I, and I tend to agree with them, is that the intent of this certain scribe himself may not be as intentionally evil as the entirety of the Pharisees. And we'll see that in just a moment when we get to the end of the text. Because again, the question in itself is a good question, and we know that the Pharisees are desiring to test him, but we see in Jesus' response to this particular scribe why something may be happening different in his own life. So we see the plot created and the plot commenced. I want you to notice, thirdly with me, the plot confounded. Look at verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law in the prophets. Jesus' response is as precise as it is brief. Instead of picking one law in particular out of all of the Mosaic law, he summarizes the entirety of the Ten Commandments here in these two statements. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, but this is a complete summarization of the Ten Commandments. The first statement applying to the first four of the commandments and the second applying to the remaining six. Now, this flies in the face of, of all of those who would teach today that the Old Testament has no validity or application to the Christian faith. Now, that might sound strange for some of you in the room, but, but there are Christians today who teach this idea that the Old Testament has no bearing on us as believers today, that the law is completely abolished and done away with, that the Ten Commandments have no application to our lives, that we don't need to worry about those things. And in fact, it even goes so far into some groups, into what's called hypergrace, uh, where it says that you know, we really don't have to ask for forgiveness of sin. Uh, because all those things have been done away with. We don't have to worry about it anymore that God just forgives us no matter what. We don't even have to consider what our lives look like. But Jesus here is demonstrating something entirely different. Because if the law does not still have an application to us to understand what God expects out of us in the Ten Commandments, then Jesus here would have said something entirely different. He would not have referenced back to the Ten Commandments to demonstrate these things. So Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because you see, the first part of the Ten Commandments has to do with our relationship to God. How do we live before Him? How do we live our lives in relation to Him? And the second part of the Ten Commandments has to do with our relationship with others, how we live our life. Now, the response that Jesus gives here 
that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, uh, was part of what they called the Shema. It was the most familiar and copied and quoted text in the Jewish faith. It was comprised of uh, Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 9, uh, which uh, Pastor Wesley read for us this morning. Also from Deuteronomy 11, chapters 13, uh, verses 13 through 21, and Numbers 15, verses 37 through 41. And, and you'll hear how familiar that was. The passage that Pastor Wesley read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these are the words I am commanding you today. And we find the instruction that God gives to the Jewish people, which they did. He said, you shall bind them as a sign uh, on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, and write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And if you go to Israel today, you'll see Jewish men walking around with phylacteries, a little box on their forehead, which has these texts written down in there and placed inside of it. They take this very literally. They put it there on their forehead. You go to the house of a person who is Jewish and you'll walk in on the door and you'll see this little thing on the side of the door that has these texts written and placed inside. They were obeying these commands in a very, very literal, more, much more than even just practical, a very literal type of way. Deuteronomy chapter 11. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, that He will give you rain for your land in its season the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. So we see this promise that God had given, that if you do these things, God will show His blessings, God show His favor. This is the way that you demonstrate your love for Him, and then God shows you those things in return. But the first thing we see in this is there's a call to love God. A call to love God. Now, we talked about this kind of love just briefly as we began, but I want to go back and talk about this again because the Hebrew word used for love in Deuteronomy chapter 6 there, where this text is based off of, speaks to the idea of an act of the will or of the mind. It's a determined choice that is made. It's the Old Testament equivalent of agape love, which is a purposeful and committed love. It's a love that is the act of the will. Now, what that means is it's not an act based on feelings. So it's not that God loves us because He feels like loving us. It's a love that He makes because He has decided to love us. The Scripture says that we love Him because He first loved us. John MacArthur said it's the love that recognizes and chooses to follow what is righteous, noble, and true, regardless of what one's feelings in the matter might be. Agape love means, brothers and sisters, that we have made a decision that we're going to love God, not because we feel like it, but because we want to, because it is a desire from the end. We have made a decision to love God that comes out of his decision to love us. We could not do it if it was not God who was doing it for us. But when we see this love, it's a sacrificial love. It's a purposeful kind of love. It's a love that determines what is best, but not maybe what is popular. It's a love that says, I'm going to love no matter what the cost may be. It's a love that says, I'm going to love no matter if I get anything in return, I'm still going to demonstrate this love. So how, do, how are we to love? Well, the first thing that we're to do is to love your God. Notice that. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. And we love God because He is ours. As I just said, the Scripture says that we love Him because He first loved us. It's impossible to love God in a true and a right way without Him first loving you. We cannot love God without first His love being bestowed upon us. The Scripture says that before Christ we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we can expound upon that for a moment, but there's not anything that a dead man can do but stink. Dead man can't love. A dead man can't change his mind. A dead man can't do anything else. The only thing that a dead man can do is lie there until an outside force acts upon him. Being spending many years in the fire department, many years in emergency services, I've seen a dead person. I've seen them laying there. I've seen a person who is clinically dead. They don't do anything. They can't do anything. 
Now, you might have somebody who's had a heart attack, and even if they've had a heart attack, they're lying there, and they can't do anything to save themselves. They can't give themselves CPR. They can't shock themselves with a defibrillator. The only way that that person who is in that condition can have any kind of resurrection is if the outside force acts upon them to do that. And brothers and sisters, it's exactly the same way in our spiritual condition. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. We cannot love God, love God. We cannot save ourselves until first the Holy Spirit of God moves upon our heart to change us to the place where we can love Him in return. So we love God because He's ours. I love what Matthew, Matthew Henry said. He said, we must love God as reconciled to us and made ours by covenant. That is the foundation of this, thy God. He's our God. Have you ever thought about that? He says, you shall love the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, He is your God. He's not just the God. I mean, he, he is, but He's not just some distant deity. He's not some lofty God in the sky. He's not just a God. He's not one among many. He's the only God. But brothers and sisters, He is your God. He is your Father. You can go to Him in prayer. You can go to Him with the things you need. You can go to Him at any moment of any day because He is your God and you are His child. And so we love God because He is ours. We have made a decision because of what has happened that we will love our God. And Jesus says that's part of this great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. He says you shall love with all your heart. So we love your God, but we also love with all your heart. So in Jewish culture, the center of thinking and feeling and emotion was the heart. So when Jesus says that we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, he means that we're to love God with everything within us, with all of our being, with everything that we have. We're to love him more than all other things. It's often said that if you look at somebody's checkbook, you can see where their priorities are. But it can also be said that if you look at somebody's passions, you can see where their love is. What do we give our best time to? Every one of us has a best time. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are evening people. Some of us might be midday people. Okay? There's, there's nobody in the room, but we're all different. But each one of us has a best time for us as a human being. The best time when our mind is keenly alert and awake. The best time when we feel like we're really where we need to be. So what do we give our best time to? Do we give it to frivolous things? Do we give it to things that don't matter? Or do we give our best time to the one who ultimately matters? Jesus says that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart. So everything within us is to love God and to be passionate about Him. Albert Barnes says to love Him with the heart is to fix all affections supremely on Him more strongly than on anything else and be willing to give up all that we hold dear at His command. That can sometimes be very difficult for us in an American context. To give up everything that we hold dear because we... But it says that even the least of us have a lot of things that we hold dear. I oftentimes read biographies, and, and I have to be honest, sometimes I, I find myself jealous or envious of, of prior generations who did not have all the tangible things that we tend to hold on and to cling to. Because ultimately, what is the most important? We have houses, we have cars, we have computers, we have cell phones, we have a television, we have all these kinds of things, and we tend to think that all those things are so vastly important to us. But what are we willing to give up for Christ? Ask yourself this question in this moment. Is there anything in your life that if Jesus said in this moment, it's got to go, that you would struggle to give it up? And if there is, that shows you that there's an area in your life where you're not loving God with all your heart. Now, I'm not saying it would be easy. Because brothers and sisters, sometimes the Lord calls us to give up things that are supremely dear to us. 
But we must be willing, even in those moments, to say, Lord, if it be your will, so let it be done. You look at men like Adrianim Judson, who I think buried three wives on the mission field. You look at men who have given up everything to follow after Christ. Women who have given up everything to go serve the Lord in a foreign context. I've told the story many times, but I often think of the story of the Moravian missionaries who heard of an island in the West Indies where a man had all these slaves there. And he had them there working on the island, and he would not let them Uh, He would not let any missionaries come to the island to teach these slaves. So these Moravian missionaries sold themselves to the landowner into slavery so that they could go there and as slaves, they could preach the gospel to the other slaves that were there on the island. And so they sold themselves into lifelong slavery. They, They gave up everything that they had so that they could go be slaves on this island so that they could preach the gospel to people they knew who desperately needed to hear the truth. And the saying goes that the story goes that as they left the port, that the last words that they heard from the missionaries were, May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. That's what it means to love God with all your heart. That you're willing to do whatever God calls you to do. But Jesus goes on, he says, Don't just love God because he's yours. Don't just love God with all your heart. He says, Love God with all your soul. This relates to the mind and to the self. So we're to love God, not just with the things that we're willing to give up or the things that we're willing to do, but we're willing to love him with all of our life when we commit to his service. That individually, we're willing to say that, God, if you call me to it, I will lay down my very life. Spurgeon said that we're to love God with all our life and actually to love him more than our life. Our life is given to us by God. And by His grace, every one of us in this room will live a long and rich life. But brothers and sisters, there may be some of us in this room who God has numbered our days much shorter than we would care to think about. But if He does, then that's okay. Because He knows what is good. He knows what is best. And we have to be willing to say, God, whatever it is that you want for us to do, we are willing to do it. And it comes not just for us as as living our own life, but, but parents in the room. We need to pray this for our children. And this is a hard thing. For those of you who are parents, you understand this as you watch your children grow and you love them. There is no parent who desires a short and unproductive life for their child. Every parent desires to see their children grow up and to do great things. And as Christians, we should desire our children to grow up and do great things for the Lord. And just the other day, Becky and I were praying, and I just prayed, Lord, I said, whatever you have for Piper and Henry and Jack, Father, we want them to serve you. We give them to you that you do whatever you want to do in the midst of their life. And we pray that they will be obedient to that. But when we pray those things, we have to be willing to realize that those plans may be completely different than what we had in mind. So we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, with all our soul, and then we're to love the Lord our God with all of our mind. This speaks to the rational element, to the mental power. We're to love God's law. We're to love the gospel more than our own opinions. To love the Lord our God with all of our mind is to submit our intellect to Him, to commit to Him and His work all the efforts and the products of our intellect. If you've spent much time around me and Pastor Ben and Pastor Wes will attend to this, I am a very opinionated person. Becky, perhaps most, would, it, would, would, would agree with that. I'm a very opinionated person. I have what I think, and I know what I think. But brothers and sisters, we have to be willing to put everything that we think to the side if it contradicts with the Word of God. We have to be willing to lay all of our opinions aside, even if we are entirely convinced that we are right. If we are confronted with the Word of God and we're confronted with what He has said, we have to be willing to toss aside all of those things and totally conform to what God has commanded us to do. 
All three of these elements are mentioned, the heart, the soul, and the mind, in order to demonstrate that the entirety of a person, because if you describe a person, this is typically how people talk about it, the heart, the soul, and the mind, speaks to the entirety of the entire being. So what this is talking about is that the element of being in obedience to God, the greatest commandment, is that we are totally, completely given over to a love for God in every area of our life. And Jesus says that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind is the great and the foremost commandment. Now he's saying that it's great in the sense, not just in the sense of order, but before anything else can be done, before we can even follow the secondary commandment that Jesus is going to give us, we have to love the Lord our God with our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. That's the reason it's the greatest and the foremost, because it all hinges on that one. Then the second one comes out of that. Because Jesus says not only do we have a call to love God, but we have a call to love neighbor. And we cannot love our neighbor if we do not first love our God. And if we do not love our neighbor, then we do not love our God. Leviticus chapter 19 says you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is a call to love our neighbor. So who is your neighbor? Now, to the Pharisees, their neighbor would have just been themselves. They wouldn't have seen anybody else outside of their circle as their neighbor. It would have just been this collect group. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor, he's expounding more upon this than not just talking about that inner working of people. So when we talk about for us as a neighbor, we're not just talking about the members of our church, and we're not just talking about the person who lives across the street from you. We're not just talking about your physical neighbor. We're just talking about our love for the people who are around us. We have neighbors everywhere we go. We have neighbors that live across the street, but we have neighbors that we work with. We have neighbors that we go to school with. We have neighbors that we uh, have uh, encounters with when we're out in town. So how do we love other people? This is what Jesus is telling us. How do we love others who are outside of us, outside of a group? How do we demonstrate that love for God, the love that God has called us to in our love in everything else. John Broadus said, there is no earnest and intelligent love to God without love to our neighbor. And the love of our neighbor derives its fundamental and necessary sanction from love to God. So how do we love? Well, it's the same kind of love. It's purposeful, it's meaningful, it's intentional, and it's active. So we, we, we don't get to decide whether we love other people. Let me say that again. We don't get to decide if we love other people. And I'm not just talking about certain groups. I'm talking about everybody. Now, this, this is another one of those areas because as I'm saying this, I'm sure that some of you are in this room are saying, yeah, but surely you don't mean those people. I do. I exactly mean those people. You say, well, surely you don't mean that person. Yes, I do. I mean that person too. Because, brothers and sisters, how could we ever withhold love towards any person when God did not withhold his love from us? If we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, what we, what we are doing is demonstrating that we see the love that God has shown for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of that, we have to be willing to love even those who might despise us. We have to be willing to love even those whom formerly we despised because of what they might have said or done to us. And again, this is not a love based on feeling. This is the thing to understand and remember, because a lost world would say, well, I can't love that person because what they, do, what they did to me. Well, because you're talking about love based on feeling. You're talking about love based on emotion. The kind of love that Jesus is talking about here is I'm going to make a decision that I'm going to love that person because of what God has commanded, because of what God has done. It's a purposeful decision. It's an active decision. So it's not just a love that we talk about, but it's a love that we demonstrate. In, in Luke's gospel, he followed this, this account up with Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. 
which is perhaps one of the, the best examples of love for one another. That this Samaritan who came along, even though he was despised, even though they, these were enemies, he was willing to help this person. He made a decision that I'm not going to care about what our cultural associations are. I'm not going to care about what people might say. I'm not going to care about what people might think. I'm going to show love to this man because he needs love. He needs help. He needs something to happen for him. So we show love to our neighbor. Jesus says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. He confounded him. Because they thought, we've got him. We're going to ask Jesus this question. And surely, no matter which one of the 613 laws that Jesus picks out, we've got him. And Jesus confounded their plan because in this answer, he summarized every single part of the law that God had given. Because every part of the law could be found in obedience if we show love to God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and if we love our neighbor as ourselves. I want you to notice now the plot corrected. Because Jesus now gives them a new way of thinking. He says in verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So he's pointed to this, that everything, love for God and love for others, everything is summed up with the Old Testament and even through the New Testament with these two ideas. So these guys, he's saying, Pharisees, I'm going to give you a whole new way to look at this. You wanted to confound me, now I'm going to correct you. I'm going to show you that this is the way that you're to live. If you want to be an obedient to God, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and you will be found in obedience to God. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, we don't have time to, to, to run off on this, but... This scripture, and 1 John is one of those scriptures that you cannot read. If you read it with an open mind, wanting and desiring the Holy Spirit to speak to you, you cannot read it and oftentimes not be slapped across the face. Because John is so crystal clear in that text about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he says here, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, brothers and sisters, there is not a... Uh, a Christian veil that is placed over your face when you become a Christian so that I can look at you and tell whether you're a Christian or not. Nothing changes physically about a person when they become a Christian. And oftentimes in the world we live in today, if you were to say or to question somebody's religious experience or conversion experience, you're oftentimes met with hostility and anger. But how dare you? How dare you say that that person is not a Christian? Well, John says very clearly here that this person over here can claim all day long that they're a Christian. They can point you to the baptism certificate on their wall. They can point you to the mark on the carpet where they knelt on the ground. They can point you to the Sunday school classroom where they taught every year. They can point to every single thing that by all accounts would say this person is a Christian. But John says if they do not love, they do not know God. So as believers, we can very easily say to someone, brother, it's like, I love you dearly, and you claim to be a Christian, but you do not show love. And the scripture says, if you don't show love, you don't know God. And it's as clear as day. So Jesus is saying, here's a new way of thinking, because what does this mean for the Pharisees, right? Because they're striving to live by keeping the law. And Jesus says, you keep the law by showing love towards one another. You keep the law by loving God, and in loving God, that's a demonstration. He says, you're never going to make it on your own. And brothers and sisters, we can't make it on our own. The only way that we can love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves is by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We could not do it on our own. We could not just get up one morning and say, I'm going to love God perfectly. Because in thinking that we could love God perfectly, we've already sinned because he's told us that we can't do it. 
So we depend upon him. We depend upon his love. So there's this new way of thinking. And what's interesting is that Jesus' response in this new way of thinking even struck this scribe in a different way. Now, it's not in the text, but I encourage you just for a moment, flip with me over to Mark chapter 12. As we wrap up here, I want you to just notice this one thing. Mark chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus has just said this exact same. This is Mark's recount of this story. He says, The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is why earlier I mentioned the fact that many scholars believe that this particular lawyer might not have had the darkest of intentions as the rest of the Pharisees did. Because when Jesus gives this response, suddenly he says, Jesus, you're right. This, you're exactly right. To love the Lord your God is not just a great answer, but he says it's more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now think about this, this is a Jewish religious leader. This is a Pharisee. He's saying that what, he, he is confessing that what Jesus just said stands in total disagreement to everything that he teaches. But he says, Jesus, you're right. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love one's neighbor is better, more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So it was a new way of thinking. And finally, I want you to notice that it was a new way of living. Stay right there in Mark. Because it says, When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. This response that Jesus gave was so profound and direct that two things here occurred. One, the Pharisee who responded to Jesus was so struck by his answer that he was close to abandoning his pharisaical life and following after Jesus. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So what does this help us understand? This helps us to understand that what Jesus is declaring here helps us to have a clear perspective of what it means to be a Christian. What does the life of someone who is a believer looks like? It looks like somebody who strives to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Jesus' answer silenced the mouth of the Pharisees. No one after that moment would ask him any more questions. James Boyce said, Everyone should know that true religion consists of a perfect love for God and of other human beings, but none of us can love perfectly. That is why we need a Savior. We need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need to commit yourself to Him as the only possible Savior and your rightful Lord. My question for you this morning, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, will today be the day that you respond to Him? To love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. That means that it's a decision to be made. And, it's, and in fact, it's not so much a decision as it is a obedience to a command. It's the first of many commands that we obey from God. He commands us to repent and to trust in Him. And then we live the rest of our lives in obedience to His further commands through His Scriptures. But perhaps you're here in the room this morning and you are a believer. Here's the question for you. Are you loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Are you willing to give up anything that God would tell you to give up? 
Are you willing to lay down whatever it is that he says for you to lay down? Are you willing to lay down even the entirety of your whole life? Are you willing to commit yourself to whatever God may have for you? And if the answer is no this morning, then I would encourage you in just a few moments as we pray to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I know there's some areas in my life that you're showing me right now that I need to give over to you. There's some things that have taken the best place in my life where only you deserve. And the follow-up to that is, do you love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean to love somebody as yourself? Well, every morning when you get up, do you feed yourself? Do you get yourself water when you get thirsty? Do you take care of yourself? Do you wash your clothes? Do you make sure that you're clean? Do you do all those kinds of things? Why do we do that? Because we love ourselves. There's nothing inherently wrong with loving ourselves from a biblical perspective. Now, the worldly idea of loving ourselves can get carried to the extreme. But every person in this room, we love ourselves. That's why we get up in the morning and we take a shower and we brush our teeth and we comb our hair and we put on clothes and we feed ourselves. We feed ourselves because we love ourselves and we desire to continue to live. We don't think about it. We get up and we do these things and we don't even think about it. And Jesus says that's the way that we're to love other people without even thinking about it. We don't think about the effort we put on ourselves. We should live, love neighbor, or love other people in the same way that we love ourselves without even giving it a second thought. But maybe this morning you can think of some person, some group of people, some individual that you know this morning that you're struggling with showing that kind of love for. So in just a few moments as we pray, ask God to help you to not only love him with your heart and with your soul and in your mind, but to love neighbor, to love that person, those group of people, that individual, to love them as we love ourselves. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the instruction of your word. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus' message here. Lord, of what it means to know your commands to understand the, the law that you have given and to understand, Father, that all of this can be summarized. All this can be brought down to this concise two statements, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. But, Father, we confess that we fail often at this. Lord, we are weak people. We struggle in the fight. And Lord, we know that the only way that we can do what you have called us to do here is by your power working in us, shaping us and changing us and molding us into who you want us to be. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us each day to show you the kind of love that you desire from us. Lord, if there's any areas in our lives that we have been unwilling to give over to you, Father, show them to us so that we can lay them down at your feet. Father, if there's anything that we have placed in our life in a position that is higher than you, Father, show it to us so, so we can remove it off the throne and put you back on the throne where you deserve to be. Father, help us to love our neighbors, to love others, those that we come into contact with. Father, help us to love them in the way that you have loved us, in the way that you have commanded us to show that love. Father, we pray for your grace to work in our lives that it may be evident that we are your children and your disciples. And we ask all of these things this morning in Jesus' name.